Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, the pandemic is over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Congress has solved all its problems. Yep. 2021. Yeah, here we are, just Behind plowing us. right ahead, surging into the new year. Feels very s- the same. It, it, well, maybe worse. I don't <laughs> maybe know. Yeah, maybe worse. a little worse. Yeah. Just all the, uh, the, the aggravation is really just building up into something something fun. Although, I, I'm hopeful that this, this Omicron thing... It's going to be like a one-month problem. Pandemic-wise, I'm actually, yeah, like uh, curiously hopeful for someone who has been on like Omicron lockdown and dealing with new school closures and the rest of it. But uh, uh, the school, you stuff, can kind man. of see a light flickering there at the end of a very long dark tunnel. Long dark <laughs> tunnel. Uh, okay, here's what we got for you guys today, dear listeners. So we got Donald Trump endorsing Viktor Orban of Hungary, Ben's uh, longtime friend, yes. Viktor Orban. Talk about how that folds into this broader conversation we're having this week about our democracy. The latest on Russia and Ukraine. Uh, there's some news about China and Lithuania that you flagged that's very interesting. A little note about Hong Kong. There was a major election in Chile. Uh, and then we're going to talk through some of the big elections ahead of us in 2022. Um, finally, I got some clickbait for you about the Queen of England. Uh, the happiest interaction with a bank in history. And then, Ben, you just finished our interview for today. Uh, who'd you talk to? What are listeners going to hear? I talked to Howard French, who is a longtime foreign correspondent for The New York Times and has a really important new book out called Born in Blackness, which is basically about how we don't fully understand the history of the world because we've kind of erased Africa from that history. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book is extraordinary in its own right. We talk about the, the argument behind it, um, but also... You know, there are issues on the show we talk about, like Mali and Haiti, uh, where I think the context is important, yeah. <laughs> why these places are like they are today. So he kind of connects the dots between the history of places like Mali or Haiti uh, and, and why they look like they do today. The colonialism uh, and the U.S. role. Yeah, and, and it goes even deeper than that. I mean, the the, the, the imperialism is only the, the latest version of the calamities that have befallen these places. So I thought it, it's important sometimes to kind of look under the hood uh, of these places that we talk about that just seem like a mess, right? And uh, and then we talk about Africa's future and uh, what it's going to take, what the potential is and what the potential problems are. So uh, good to cover uh, Africa uh, more than we often get a chance to do. There's a big news over the break with Desmond Tutu's passing. Yep. Uh, with, you know, there's sort of constant talk about, you know, the challenges in Ethiopia and in Somalia. So yeah, I'm very glad you guys did that. Um, ben, if you want to feel better informed about 2022, in 2022, Make sure you subscribe to our daily news podcast, What a Day, which is the biggest events of the day, the stories you don't want to miss in 20 minutes or less. And if you want COVID news without the clickbait, without the fear porn, without the Twitter fighting, listen to America Dissected with Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. He is smart. He's reasonable. He's experienced in public health. He'll help you figure out like what you need to know, what you need to not freak out about. Episodes drop every Tuesday. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. Okay. So Ben is uh, Insurrection Anniversary Week. So happy, happy anniversary to you, Tom. Insurrection yeah. Anniversary yeah. to you. Um, of course, what better way for President Trump to kick off the celebrations <laughs> yeah, the yeah. than by endorsing Viktor Orban, the autocratic prime minister of Hungary, who brags about slowly strangling Hungary's democratic institutions. Um, I think the last time we talked about Orban in depth was when Fox News's favorite white nationalist, Tucker Carlson, was over there for a week broadcasting from uh, Budapest. Uh, Over the last decade, you know, you've talked about this extensively. You've written about it. Orban has consolidated power in Hungary by restricting press freedom, packing courts, gerrymandering, rewriting the constitution and election laws, school textbooks. Uh, I was reading today about how 
he influences the culture of the government there, even uh, appoints theater directors yeah. to ensure that, I don't know, it's culturally consistent with his government. I, it, it's insane. Ben, uh, so I sort of half joked about this sort of this being insurrection anniversary week, but what do you make of this endorsement and how do you think Trump in the right wing's embrace of Orban folds into this conversation that we're having constantly about the U.S. democracy and the threats to it? Yeah, no, and I wanted to try to figure out a, a new way of attacking this because um, we've talked about this a bunch. Um, and to me, I, I think what's so important is, uh, you know, you have to understand, right, uh, that Orban is a guy who has not only kind of turned this democracy into an autocracy, but he's been very clear about the fact that that's what he's doing. You know, um, he's proud of it. Yeah, and so the the reason you know I I start my book there, right? In 2014, he gave a speech in which he said that the future for the West is not democracy; it's something he called illiberal democracy. Um, and he said that countries in Europe and the West generally, and that includes the United States, should look to like Russia and China as the model for the future of government and society, right? So the reason I think it really matters um, is this is the whole ball game here, right? Like a guy like Orban just comes out and says out loud what he is doing, which is trying to erase liberal democracy and create an ethno-nationalist autocratic model and system that Putin had already created before him. And Orban did a lot to copy Putin, that Erdogan has done in Turkey, that Netanyahu has tried with varying degrees of success to do in Israel, that Bolsonaro has tried to do in Brazil, that Duterte has tried to do in the Philippines, that Modi's trying to do in India, uh, and on and on and on. And when you step back from the day to day, you have to realize that we are entering the kind of decisive question period of whether that will succeed. So Trump is the leader of the Republican Party and now just says out loud, this is who I want to align myself with. This is what so, we're this doing. This is my guy. We're not, he's not pretending to be a small D Democrat. He's saying, no, I'm I'm with this crowd and the entire Republican Party's with this crowd too. Orban has an election this year. The opposition is doing everything they possibly can to be able to contest that election. We've talked about how they've all gotten behind one candidate. They've chosen the kind of most conservative small seat candidate because that guy's most likely to yep. win. You know, and if they can't win like that uh, because Orban has so sufficiently rigged the system, it's hard to see that they ever will. Right. In the same way here in the United States, though, the Republicans have rigged the system for themselves. Right. Through gerrymandering, through eviscerating campaign finance, through packing the courts, all the same things that Orban has done in Hungary. And if they can succeed in the midterms in 2022 first and then creating a pathway to, to 2024, like this is this is the whole ballgame, people. Like yep, yep. I, I so I, I think that the reason the endorsement matters and Trump saying it out loud matters in the context of our midterm election, Orban's election, some of these other elections we're gonna talk about later in the show, is that this is really the the future of whether or not Orban is right and Trump is right, that 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 it's not about democracy or whether we, democracy can survive, you know. Yeah, yeah. And look, j just so people don't think we're overstating it, I mean Trump endorsed him. He met with Orban in the Oval Office in 2019. Uh, Orban has been denied an Oval Office meeting and since 1998. Uh, Orban endorsed Trump in 2020, so this is sort of a bit of old school politics. But it's not just Trump. Bannon, Steve Bannon called him a hero. Mike Pence went to a conference in, in Hungary last year. CPAC is doing their conference in Hungary, right? I mean, it's the whole right-wing uh, infrastructure and ecosystem that's behind this guy. Uh, 
interesting thing I read about in preparation for today. So later this year, the European Court of Justice, which is like the EU Supreme Court, is going to decide if the EU has the authority to basically condition funds that they give out to yeah. member states on, you know, condition them saying you have to meet these core values. Do you think that will have a meaningful impact on Orban at this point or is like the the horse out of the barn here? The horse to some extent is out of the barn, but this is a step they should have done a long time ago because they give him billions of dollars a year because Hungary is a poor member of the EU. They get billions of dollars for for things like infrastructure projects. Yeah. And Orban has just stolen from you know, skimming massive amounts off the top. He gives the contracts to all of his cronies. They skim off the top and use that money, literally, to finance Orban's corruption, Orban's politics, all these things. And right. so this is the EU finally saying, we're going to condition this and kind of use this as a pressure tool uh, against people like Orban. He's not the only person uh, in the EU that that they might have to consider this for. You know, Poland next door mm-hmm. is another country that, that has undergone serious democratic backsliding. But I mean, I, I think the point is that if, if we're not going to take this seriously, we're going to lose, yeah, you yeah. know, and it's time to start to use every tool at our disposal, those of us who care about democracy, uh, to to show that this this is out of bounds. But again, like, it's the same thing here, Tommy, like, it may be too late here. <laughs> the, 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 the extent of gerrymandering, the extent of voter suppression laws, you know, we're, we're playing catch up in all these places. It's not like a starting gun went off. These people have been playing a certain game for, for 10 years. And you talk about the Republican Party. I mean, one of Orban's biggest lobbyists in the U.S., Connie Mack, a former Republican mm-hmm. office holder, they've both tra- both Orban and the Republican Party trafficked in this kind of anti-George Soros conspiracy yep. theorizing. They've got these deep tentacles that all connect, um, and and we have to be as connected uh, as as a, as small D Democrats, progressives, center left. You know, all of us who care about democracy. I mean. Frankly, I, I kind of try to think of this podcast as part of that interconnection that we, we bring different voices in and, and it's a forum for that because, uh, you know, that's what they're doing. Yeah, that, it is what they're doing. I mean, you hear it all the time on with, on Bannon's show. I mean, here, here's the like, I shouldn't look for coherence in like Trump's policy views and right wing policy views. But here's one glaring incoherent part of it, which is that the main boogeyman for the right wing, at least on foreign policy, is China. But Orban has relentlessly pursued closer ties with China. Hungary was the first European country to join the Belt and Road Initiative. Orban uh, told Mike Pompeo to fuck off when he was trying to keep help them uh, keep a telecom company called Huawei out of Hungary. Hungary blocked EU efforts to criticize China over Hong Kong. But it's is it? Do you think that Orban's like anti-immigrant kind of like right-wing religiosity just sort of? glosses over all of that like how how do they how are they okay with both of those things i think that what it shows is because you're right i mean orban the single largest huawei production facility outside china is in hungary right they closed down George Soros's uh, university in mm-hmm. Hungary and are replacing it with a massive Chinese, Chinese university, yeah. which is apparently also like a probably like a giant listening post. Oh, you know? absolutely. Um, yes, yes. Uh, to spy on NATO and stuff. Um, so it's like a security threat and economic vulnerability and all the rest of it. I think the important thing that it shows is some Republicans may sincerely hold these kind of anti-China views, right? You're kind of Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, uh, wing of the party. But at the end of the day, it's an autocratic party committed to autocratic power on the basis of white Christian ethno-nationalism, just like Orban's party. Yeah. That 
pardon the pun, trumps everything else. Yeah, it transcends everything. Like everything else is secondary to the accumulation of power on behalf of their ethno-nationalist agenda. And you have to think of the Republican Party in that way, in the same way that you think about some foreign government party, you know, that 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 you know has other interests and other policies that they talk about. But what they're really only about is the accumulation and maintenance of power for their sect. And that's where we are in this country. And we're not accustomed to thinking about political parties like that. We think of them as like uh, like a collection of different factions and interests and mm-hmm. policy, policy positions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the Republican Party is about, it's really just about one thing. Yeah. You know? It's far easier to unite people uh, in that sort of like tribal, my yeah. team, your team way. Uh, okay. So dark stuff there. Uh, let's transition to Ukraine because unfortunately tensions are still pretty high between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, there was a flurry of activity over the holidays. Biden and Vladimir Putin talked for about 50 minutes on December 30th. That must have sucked. Uh, Biden threatened sanctions. Putin threatened a a major response to any sanctions, so no breakthroughs there. On Sunday, uh, Biden called President Zelensky of Ukraine. Jen Psaki gave a readout of that call and said President Biden made clear that the United States and its allies and its partners will respond decisively if Russia further invades Ukraine. So again, again, nothing particularly new there. Um, But Ben, there was an interesting report in Reuters about a possible way the U.S. might punish Russia if this invasion happens. It was about certain export control measures that could be part of the response along with economic sanctions. What do we know about this new you know, export control measure response? Well, first of all, I mean, you, you mentioned Strapon Reuters, and it was you know, you, you used to do this time. <laughs> like, Strategically. Like, yeah, it was it was clearly like, you know, they, yeah. they weren't they weren't concealing. It wasn't like they wanted somebody there. learned right. It wasn't like, you know, we're hearing that this may be happening. It was like someone sat us down and walked us through something we're considering, yep. right? And what this is, when you talk about export controls, you know, there are different kinds of sanctions. And some sanctions are like you're trying to freeze people's assets. Some sanctions are kind of trying to cut off certain companies from the financial system. An export control is like denying the capacity of a country like Russia to import certain materials, right? And 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 what the very specific proposal in this murder story alluded to was denying Russia the capacity to access certain materials that are pretty essential for everything from smartphones to the, their defense industrial base. We're talking mm-hmm. about semiconductors in particular and, and other inputs into you know, really key Russian industries, right? So, so you try to cut them off through this tool from the, the capacity to, to do everything from manufacture aircraft and, and smartphones to other defense technologies. And, and so you know, I think what they're doing here is a, a, a few different things. On the, the sanctions front, they're just trying to get a little more specific in saying, you know, we're considering these types of options that are going to have a, like a big impact potentially if, if they're multilateral, if other countries play ball with us on not just the Russian economy, but the Russian capacity to sustain like its military machine, mm-hmm. you know. Um, then they're also, you know, trying to shore up the rest of the <laughs> alliance, uh, particularly European allies, to go along with that. But also on the NATO front to say, if Russia moves further into Ukraine, it's actually going to bring about the opposite of what they say they want, which is to get NATO out of Eastern Europe. There'll be kind of a beefing up of NATO presence in Eastern Europe. You even saw Finland, you know, float potential NATO membership, right? So mm-hmm. NATO expansion, which Russia obviously doesn't want either near its borders. Um, so you're going to get 
you, Vladimir Putin, what you don't want, right? You know, yep. Not just sanctions, but more more NATO in your space. And you know, you see these allusions to the the fact that if if there's an invasion of Ukraine and some resistance, like we might support that uh, in, yeah. in some fashion. You flagged that in one of the stories. I mean, basically, there are suggestions not just in the reporting about the U.S. response, but about Ukraine's response about how their their military has been designed to kind of like divide into smaller parts and sort of morph into a an insurgency. I mean, that's some some sobering stuff. Do you think Putin has the same concerns about getting bogged down in a war in Ukraine when he doesn't have to answer to voters, really? I mean, I, I realize like an insurgency backed by the U.S. drove the Soviets out of Afghanistan. So there's some history here. But it does seem like their desire to take back Ukraine is a little deeper, a little more emotional uh, than, I don't know, what do I know about Putin's no, I think you're No, I think you're right about that. I think that at his core, right? Like, you know, and I looked at the 20 years of Putin for my book, like, not only is he a Russian nationalist, but he's a Russian nationalist who really believes Ukraine is a part of Russia. Yeah. And and Georgia is, you know, to some extent, a part of and Russia. It was a humiliation. Yeah, it's, it's a humiliation of Soviet Union, but it's also like, Ukraine is different than certain other Soviet republics, right. like yeah. Kazakhstan or something, that he's not seeking to bring back into Russia. Um, I think what this all adds up to is... The Biden team trying to signal like you are about to overreach, you know, and Putin does, you know, like Putin doesn't. The, one of the reasons, you know, he's concerned about this is that I remember when we were in government, the evidence was that he was covering up the loss of Russian life in Ukraine. Like he didn't want that broadcast uh, in Russian media. There was all kind of hush hush. Right. And that shows a vulnerability like he doesn't want body bags coming home. He you know, probably doesn't want enormous expenditures in, in a war in Ukraine. And, and so I think the message that the Biden team is delivering is, hey, if you do what we think you're about to do, you're about to overreach in ways that are really going to hurt you. Hey, so therefore, let's talk. You know, And that leads to the diplomacy. And there are these meetings coming up um, led by Wendy Sherman on the U.S. side in a few days where I guess they'll have these conversations about, quote unquote, European security. Mm -hmm. So far, the Russian proposals are non-starters. We've talked about them, you know, like basically NATO leave Eastern Europe. Um, but the question is, can you direct that to like, you know, going back to the solution to the unresolved war in the parts of Eastern Ukraine where Russia has been active, which was supposed to be this kind of demilitarization of those two provinces of Ukraine and some autonomy for them that's never been fully implemented. If you can somehow steer all this energy and activity towards like trying to resolve the existing conflict in Ukraine, you might forestall the other one. And, yeah. and look, I, I'm sympath on this one, the Biden people are like, they're trying to play the best hand they've got, you know, and, because at the end of the day, you can't control Vladimir Putin. No, you sure can't. This export control thing is interesting. It's a little, it's a little unnerving to me. Like I, in that Reuters story, there's a mention about how we did sort of a similar action during the Trump administration uh, by denying a chip or something to China that went into Huawei phones. It just made me think, like, what if the Chinese said, "Okay, Apple, you can't manufacture phones in China anymore." I mean, it seems like we'd be slightly fucked. The, the two could play at this game in a way yeah. that could be really scary. Yeah, no, and Apple, you know, will no longer be a $3 trillion company. I mean, no. I mean, the, the, you know, because Apple doesn't just sell phones in China, like you said, they manufacture. Yeah, them. I mean, they're trying to diversify out of that, but I yeah. imagine that Foxconn is still doing a lot of work yeah. oh, in China. Oh, I bet, I bet. I mean, you're right. And like, what it makes you, it's another proof point that we could be heading towards a kind of complete severing of whatever supply chain feeds China, Russia, and their autocratic partners and the supply chain the rest of us depend on. And I don't know 
the faster that happens, the more disruptive it'll be economically. Yeah, big time. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crooked world. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash crooked world. Sticking with China for a second. So Ben, you flagged this very odd story. Uh, So Lithuania evacuated all of its diplomats from China because they were concerned that the Chinese wouldn't recognize their immunity from prosecution. Uh, NPR had a big piece on this. They described the evacuation as so sudden that some diplomats had to leave their pets behind, which I'd like to note is monstrous. Yeah, Yeah, it's horrible. Um, So the background here, the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations from the 60s, I think, 
codified the, the, this concept of diplomatic immunity, which says if you're a diplomat, you're serving abroad, you can be expelled from that country, uh, but you can't be susceptible to a lawsuit or prosecution. That immunity can be waived if like the U.S. ambassador to Canada murders someone in Toronto, right? Like you can get, you'll probably get prosecuted. You'll probably wind up in a Canadian jail, but they're trying to protect them from, you know, intimidation and let diplomats do their jobs. So the Chinese government demanded that Lithuania's diplomats give back their diplomatic credentials after Lithuania allowed Taiwan to open an office in the Lithuanian capital. As we've discussed before, China thinks that Taiwan is their territory and they wildly overreact uh, when anyone suggests otherwise, which in this case also included blocking Lithuanian exports, recalling their ambassador to Lithuania, and just generally downgrading diplomatic relations. So Ben, I'm not surprised that China would bully the shit out of like a country of three million people like this, but it did seem, <laughs> I don't know, do you think they thought through the prospect of potentially unraveling one of the foundational principles of diplomacy? Like they don't want us arresting a bunch of Chinese diplomats in Washington. I, you know, this, this is why I kind of flagged this. I read this story and, and I, I kind of did a double take. I was like, what? <laughs> like yeah. they, they basically shut down an embassy, you know, and it right. di didn't get that much attention. But like, it, there's two things that jumped out to me. One is that like Lithuania's got some, can we say some stones? They got some, yeah, yeah, yeah they got some stones. Um, I mean, because they've they've also been the safe haven for the Belarus opposition, mm -hmm. and they've had these interactions with Taiwan, and they're clearly a country that is run out of fucks to give. <laughs> Where do you uh, think like, that comes from? It's Three million people. I, like. I think it comes from being a former Soviet republic, yeah. and so their identity and their connection to the idea of you know freedom, to use a, a word that you know has gone out of favor, is really intense, and and they're willing to take some hits for it. But man, this is you know because like we use these Cold War paradigms, like. In the Cold War, we had embassies in places. Right. I mean, th that's why this stood out to me. Is like, we're, this is kind of more extreme. This goes back to like uh, the 1700s when yeah. you would arrest like the king's cousin yeah, before yeah, you got a yeah. war. It just, it, so to me, it's this kind of weird bellwether of like, where is this all headed? Like, are, you know, we're not even going to have like embassies. Um, I mean, it just shows you how uh, intense the Chinese pressure is. And if you decide to take a stand, uh, like Lithuania did, you, you may just need to to leave the pets behind. You know? Yeah, um, don't bring get, your dog get, to yeah. the you know Beijing embassy. Well, and if you look at it, remember they the Chinese arrested um, the Chinese Communist Party. I always <laughs> need to differentiate. Right, right. Uh, ar arrested like a couple Canadians when uh, uh, the Huawei official was arrested mm -hmm. in Canada. I mean, like we're we're entering into like waters that. That even in the Cold War, um, yeah, that's basically kidnapping, yeah, right? I mean, that's yeah. reciprocal prosecution, yeah, and detention. And so this is, um, you know, I, I just like underneath the surface of of what's happening in the world, there's like some pretty extreme sorting out happening in terms of like the the China block and China Russia block and the rest of the world. Yeah, know? I should have said hostage taking, not kidnapping, but you get the concept. Yes. Here. Um, another just quick update that I noticed over the break, Ben. So. It's worth flagging for listeners that press freedom is is dying, if not all but dead, in Hong Kong. Um, most recently, a crowdfunded site in Hong Kong called uh, Citizen News announced that they're shutting down after Hong Kong police raided the headquarters of another outlet called Stand News, arrested six staff and board members. So, you know, we talked uh, back in the day about the crackdown on Apple Daily, another major formerly independent news outlet in Hong Kong. This is another series of arrests, another series of, you know, intimidations and threats that are just shutting down the free press. So it's just very sad. Yeah. I mean, just me, there's 
what's so striking about it too, again, like it, it's in keeping with the theme here, but like just a couple of years ago, there was like a very vibrant free press in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. You, you go there and there's a lot of different newspapers and magazines yep. and, you know, different options. You know, there was a growing Chinese Communist Party line. But here we are, fast forward just a couple of years, and they basically eradicated the free press entirely, you know. Uh, never mind the fact that they're they're also seeding now the quote unquote patriots only legislative body there uh-huh. after that. having a quote unquote patriots only election. Yep. And and I don't have to go into deep analysis to inform you who who kind of makes it in counts the, the yeah. Patriots yeah. Assembly. Yeah, yeah. You and I would not be patriots in that uh in that thing. So Hong Kong, I mean, the transformation is just extraordinary in just a couple of years. Yeah, Carrie Lamb was asked about this press freedom stuff and she just did a whataboutism clap back bullshit thing i mean it's yeah just, it's well over. she's kind of the vichy you know government official totally. there you know totally. uh um yeah it's it's it, these people um uh, yeah yeah it's 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 really it's sad because hong kong has been more this kind of vibrant center of culture and 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 now you know they're just going to try to turn into another chinese city yeah yeah uh here's some exciting news uh out of chile so Uh, Gabriel Boric, he's a 35-year-old leftist candidate, handily defeated his right-wing opponent named uh, Jose Antonio Cast and will become Chile's youngest modern president. Cast, the conservative here, spent the election arguing that Boric was a communist stooge, but in a nice show of unity, uh, he immediately conceded on election night when he realized he lost. And he actually personally traveled over to Boric's campaign headquarters to like have a meeting that night and like show unity. So, you know, must be nice. Yeah. Remember when that used to happen here. Um, Boric rose to prominence over the last few years during protests over economic inequality. Actually, I remember talking about this in, in 2019. It was initially over like the Santiago Metro Fair yeah. went up, yeah. sparked a protest. This podcast has been long enough that the, <laughs> We've been the around students for a while. in the streets are now running the country. Literally, yeah. literally. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, this guy is, you know, he's young. He's from the left. He represents a, a firm break from... Uh, Chile's past is a dictatorship. He has pledged to tackle climate change. He wants to turn Chile into a a basically European-style social democracy, which will be challenging with a divided Congress, but, you know, it's a good agenda. Um, Turnout was high. 56% of the country voted in the runoff. I don't know, Ben, your thoughts on on Boris, this election, what it says? Well, I mean, a few things. First of all, he won by a lot. He won by 11%. uh, Just crushed, right? So this was a decisive win. And it does speak to the kind of culmination of, of a years-long effort on the left in Chile, right? He pronounced that, you know, Chile was the birthplace of neoliberalism, right? You know, with Pinochet and a bunch of right-wing economists Man, from your Chicago. Neoliberalism could mean so many different things well, depending on who you're talking to. It exactly. can mean Pinochet. It can mean us. Yeah, it can mean yeah, Obama. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, I yeah. never know what a neoliberalism Well, he said it's going to be the death of neoliberalism in Good, Chile, right? Great. So that's his agenda. I don't like that version. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's the bad version. It's definitely the worst Pinochet version. Pinochet throwing right? people out of helicopters. Great. But, uh, you know, well, but economics would lead to inequality, right? And yeah, so he, yeah. he really wants to tackle inequality. Um, and Which you know, is great. significant raises uh, in taxation and, and and dramatic increases in social services. He's going to have to navigate both the fact that they're rewriting Chile's constitution at the same time that he's beginning to govern. And he might have to run again, depending yeah. on how that process De- goes. Depending on that process, right? But if he succeeds and he can kind of run this gauntlet, and I, I will say he's moderated a bit, you know, uh, over the course of the election from, from being like at the far end of the left to trying to, to bring in 
other people into his coalition, which is good. I mean, yeah. a sign of somebody who wants to get things done. Uh, I'm not just saying that because like it's not not not, not the neo lib here saying like, no no no. Uh, the uh, reason I was smiling is because yeah. he's young enough to like be pretty online, and I think it came out that he's like a big Taylor Swift fan, and like there yeah. was like impressions he was doing. Maybe it was very. Very funny. I mean, yeah, I'm for T Swift. Yeah, she's um, great. Yeah, I think that the other thing that we've talked about a bit on this podcast, though, is that, that like while we, you know, we don't focus that much on Latin American politics in the United States, like it is moving so fast to the left. Well, you know? that's what I want to I ask mean, you. Yeah, because yeah. people always talk about they say Chile. A lot of the coverage is like, oh, Chile is the bellwether in Latin America. They moved first, right? They were the first to break from the U.S. during the Cold War. They elected uh, a socialist. That ended with a, a coup and the Pinochet dictatorship, and the yeah. U.S. had a horrible role in, in propping them up. That's a conversation One of for Henry another Kissinger's day. Henry Kissinger's finest hours. Yeah, yeah, really great work there, everybody. But I mean, do you agree with that take? Like, do you think there's evidence to suggest that we are seeing this broader liberal progressive wave in Latin America? One hundred percent. I mean, and if you just think about the Argentina moved to the left in their elections. Honduras, we recently talked about mm -hmm. moving to the left, right? Now Chile moving to the left. You've got Lula out of prison, poised to take back power in Brazil uh, and move it to the left. Colombia has had a right-wing president increasing protests against things like inequality. Mm -hmm. They have an election coming up, right? Every election, <laughs> like there's, there's in Bolivia, right? Where Eva Morales' party came back. Every election is sending a message that people in Latin America are absolutely fed up with the extreme inequality there. There's a strong environmental component to these movements. There's been strong movements for abortion rights. Mexico governed by a left-wing populist, yeah, yeah. right? And at the same time, like, what did I see in the news about America's Latin America policy yesterday? Uh, the Biden administration is sanctioning Airbnb over its activities in Cuba. What, you the, know? what uh, is going on Which is there? like the, like Americans visiting Cubans, staying in their homes, paying Cubans directly. So uh, why would they I, do I, that? I'm not here to get on my Cuba because they're just. You know, it's Marco Rubio's policy, right? And I, I, like, I'm, I'm not Seems on my Cuba hobby horse. What I'm saying is that we, I, what is our policy? This, I, I think this is great. I think there's a lot of health in these countries dealing with inequality. Where's the United States in this conversation? We're still playing the kind of ugly neighbor to the north, obsessed with Cuba, you know, and Venezuela, and, and just totally not meeting this moment. Uh, we should be working together with these yeah. countries uh, to, to 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 borrow the Biden administration's phrase, <laughs> build back better. You know, um, there you go. And, and so, so to me, the, there's a real risk that the U.S. is hosting this summit of the Americas, right? Which happens every three years this this year in 2022. Like that, we're just going to show up like totally out of step with with the zeitgeist down there. Yeah, the, the key, I saw you tweeting about the Cuba steps. I'm very frustrating. Yeah, quite and disappointing. Just kind of self defeating. So you kind of previewed this. I mean, we're all fixated on the, the U.S. midterms in 2022, but there's some big international elections to watch this year. So I, I will list a few, probably too many, and then let's just like pluck out and talk yep. about whatever you want. So um, Mali is scheduled to have an election in late February. They just went through two coups in like nine months. So, that, you know, I think the question is really whether that election will happen or happen in a way that's fair. South Korea votes on March 9th. We'll see who uh, replaces President Moon Jae-in, close U.S. ally. North Korea approach will be dictated by that leader. So it's important. Uh, the French vote on April 10th, although they'll probably have a runoff. So it'll go later. But you got President Macron, who's like this, you know, uh, intense centrist. We'll have to deal with <laughs> yeah. two. Intense centrist is a very good. <laughs> Violently centrist. He'll neo have two. Definitely a neo yeah, Very neo lib. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he'll have two right wing opponents yeah, yeah, now. He has yeah. Marine Le Pen and this newcomer who we should do a whole segment on him at some point. Yeah, this guy, yeah, Eric Zemmour, yeah. who is basically like French white supremacist. Like, 
it's basically like Tucker Carlson running for president, but he's <laughs> yeah. like gaining a lot of support. Uh, Hungary goes to the polls in April or May. We talked about Viktor Orban already. Australia has parliamentary elections sometime before May 21st. It would be great to get Scott Morrison the fuck out of there, get yeah. some labor candidates in. Someone who won't shit the McDonald's, yeah. Yeah, Philippines on May 9th. We figure out who succeeds Duterte. Colombia on the 29th of May. Kenya picks a successor to President Kenyatta on August 9th. It's a big deal. Brazil, as you mentioned, votes on October 2nd. Hopefully they get rid of Bolsonaro. Lula could come in. Bosnia, October 2nd. Tunisia, December 17th. It's okay. It's officially too much listing. Yeah. Um, I was listening to my boy Steve Bannon's show today. <laughs> he and his crew. Oh, what's he watching? They're what's very focused on yeah. Hungary, oh. France, Brazil, right? The, the axis of assholes, yeah. Trump, Orban, uh, Bolsonaro. Which ones do you want to talk about? Which are the biggies you want to flag? Well, actually, I'm glad you you uh, hit up your your boy Bannon here because I, I think you can bucket a couple of these, right? So so one is they're the elections to watch for this kind of trend that we started with, right? Yeah. And, and to me, you know, Bannon usefully uh, shocking you know, assignment editor for this because France, you know, basically can the center hold there um, with Macron or somehow some center left candidate gets in, but basically yep. the outcome you want there is just that you don't want the far right to win. That'd no. be very, very bad. Right. Hungary. We have obviously talked about this kind of huge opportunity to try to dislodge Orban, um, Brazil, essential that Bolsonaro. Huge. Win. I mean, huge. Uh, who we should add is like got his 29th case of COVID and he's back he's in the hospital surgery. Well, yeah. I think that's cause he got, he got, he's, stabbed, he's, he got right? Yeah. So that's so his intestinal that, that blockages. But so, so to me, those, those, uh, elections, right? Um, France, Hungary, Brazil. The Philippines feels pretty greased for it to be uh, the like not Duterte dynasty, but Duterte's daughter is like vice president to like yes. Marcos's kid, and that doesn't seem yeah. good, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So, so those are but those are the elections to watch for this kind of autocracy question, right? Then you look at like uh, you know um, Kenya is interesting, and, and actually I'm going to make a correction here. I made a mistake. I was listening. To, you know, I was listening to the earlier pod, and I, 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 I had the wrong uh, tribal. You know, uh, I was listing the kind of key tribal backgrounds of the election candidates that have led to violence in the past, and I missed the name of Obama's family's tribe. That's not the one you want to mess up, which is the Luo. Oh, the is Luo, that uh, Odinga's? Yeah, that's that's Odinga, Raila Odinga, who's run uh, uh, the Luo and the Kikuyu, the two tribes. Yeah. But yeah. the thing to watch in Kenya is basically whether or not there's a reprise of the ethnic violence we've seen in the past between the two big... You know, and Odinga is going to run again, it sounds like. He runs every time, you know, right, and and he just... always kind of gets real close, you know, and yeah. it's close enough to be contested and... Uh, and may, he may have, frankly, won uh, in the past, too. But the, can you want to watch because you just don't want some further ethnic violence? So yes, that's, yes. that's it's such an important African country that deserves more attention. Um, uh, so you watch that one for that reason. you and, know. And probably uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina for the for similar reasons. Similar right? reasons, yeah. right? And so, so the, those ones you want to watch for just, you know, are, are there going to be uh, tensions? Mali, too. Mali, the question I have in Mali is it's one of these countries where – there's all this instability, and we've talked about this in Haiti context, and the international community, such as there is one, the answer is always to like to hold an election as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, like, like is that the right approach? You know, because is that going to lead to more violence? Right, and then yeah. just drone strike the shit out of the northern yeah, part and then, of Mali. Yeah. yeah, so so to me, like, those are the, the things to watch in all these elections. Oh, and then lastly, Colombia, mm -hmm. in line with the conversation we've been having, if Colombia moves to the left, right, because right. that's traditionally been a more right-wing country in Latin American politics, 
th- th- that that signals that the whole region is is going to be literally governed by uh, center left to left wing candidates. I mean, yeah, maybe not the entirety of it, but uh, it's hard for me to think of of a big country that wouldn't be after if Colombia and Brazil go that way. Yeah, the the other big one worth noting that I didn't include is that uh, uh, Uttar Pradesh was the biggest state in India. Imagine like a state with nearly 250 million people yeah, yeah, yeah. are going to vote. They they vote to elect a new legislative assembly in March 2022. That has big implications for Prime Minister Modi and the, the BJP Hindu nationalist government. By the way, did you see that um, uh, these psychopaths in India are putting bunch of like did, these yeah. female Muslim journalists on some website where they say they're being auctioned? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just really horrific, ugly stuff. I, I saw Rana yeah. Ayub, friend of the pod, yeah. tweeting about this. So, yeah. you know, if you don't follow her on Twitter or subscribe follow to her Substack, yeah, like definitely. support her. Yeah, you know what? Check out her Substack. It's really good. It's really um, good. It's really good reporting. Um, there's also some speculation that Turkey could call early elections in 2022, but uh, who knows? Well, as we talked about, Erdogan's like his experimenting with inflation is... Uh, is, is is if Joe Manchin was in the Turkish legislature, he'd be having a conniption fit, <laughs> he'd be, man. Yeah. He would be having yeah, a hard time yeah, for a lot yeah, of reasons. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's a really motley uh, selection of but, but elections I think the, to watch. The key but, takeaway is that on this question of autocracy, democracy, there, there's a bunch of bellwether elections this year, more than usual. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, one other thing before we get sort of the lighter stuff at the end. So uh, I saw that Haiti's prime minister uh, Ariel Henry survived an assassination attempt Saturday as he was attending an event at a church. By the way, marking the anniversary of Haiti's independence, uh, as we've discussed before, the, the Jovenel Moise, the former president of Haiti, was assassinated last July. Henri's office had bandits and terrorists were behind the coup attempt or the assassination attempt. Rather, who knows? One person was killed, uh, two were injured. So uh, horrible. Here yeah, no, I mean, it just shows the complete lack of security, and 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 also raises the question of like, who's exactly raising their hand to to run for office in Haiti? Oh my God, uh, yeah. I mean, it's just someone who has some built-in protection, right? Yeah. Like a gang. Like yeah, that's something. right. That's right. Not good. Um, okay. A few quick things before we get the interview. So, Ben, there were some sort of clickbaity headlines over the uh, new year about the bizarre, quote-unquote, game the Queen of England likes to play on New Year's Eve. I don't know if you saw these. I was hoping you could put on your royal hat to confirm or deny them. So, the game is reportedly called Lucky Dip, a footman. Uh, I love that term. Yeah, uh, brings Her Majesty to like a tub full of sawdust and some folded pieces of paper. I'm not sure why you need the sawdust. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the paper have they have messages on them and predictions for the year ahead. Everyone, I assume, like Philip and like oh, whatever all the yeah. the king's queen's friends, uh, picks out a piece of paper. Well, Philip's dead. But yeah, you I'm know. I'm sure he was good at it back in the day. Harry, whatever. Uh, they pick <laughs> out a piece of paper, <laughs> and I guess if the if the Particular forecast is not very favorable. The poor footman gets the blame. This is in some book. Here's my problem with this anecdote in this game. What do they do to the footman? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Beat him up. It yeah, just sounds really boring. They it's put like him in a, the Tower of London or something. It's like magic eight ball with yeah. sawdust. Like yeah. I would think that the Her Majesty is having a little more you fun just than that. Order some Chinese and have some fortune cookies. You know, um, that, that's what this sounds like. Yeah, you could just update the game a little bit. I, mean, I don't know. I didn't like this. It. it, it I didn't like. It doesn't sound very fun to me. Uh, it may. It sounds like it was probably the the first time they did it. They were probably drunk. You know, it was like, hey, I got an idea. Let's fill a tub with some sawdust and yeah. have the footman put a bunch of Back in 1964 in yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's like a lot of things in the royal family. It just needs some updating. Yes. You know, like it was probably 
cool at the beginning. Yeah, you just play heads up know, instead or something. Back when like, you know, Prince Margaret was like a man eater, you know, and, <laughs> and now it just needs, you know. Yeah, George Harrison was to, the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It needs to get in the 20, 21st century. Have you watched that Beals doc, by the way? Oh, just fucking crushed it. I watched the first tour through it. two episodes, which yeah. is like four hours of programming. Yeah. I've not finished it yet. I, I, I finished it in like a week. It was it's set, really good. It was like just, it was just like engaging with like creative genius for eight hours. Yeah, you just watch them kind of like yeah. bring these songs into being. Um, Final story is also from the UK. So a British bank called Santander said that about 2,000 customers mistakenly received double payments on Christmas Day. So that means they paid out a total of $175 million accidentally <laughs> to like their clients. <laughs> the great, uh, the great bank Christmas. said, this was a yeah, great Christmas. It was a, due to a technical issue. Uh, some payments from our corporate clients were incorrectly duplicated, blah, blah, blah. None of our clients were at any point left out of pocket as a result, and we will be working hard with many banks across the UK to recover the duplicated transactions over the coming days. So I read this and I was like, ah, it's kind of interesting. I'm sure they'll like get it all back. But then this CNN story I was reading mentioned that there was a similar incident by Citibank. Citibank meant to send $8 million to lenders to Revlon, the cosmetics company. They accidentally wired out closer to $900 million to these lenders. And here's the best part. Some of them just said, no, we're not returning it. It was just like essentially a repayment of a yeah. loan too early. They were just like, fuck it, no. Yeah. We're not going to give you your money back. And I just thought that was incredible. They've been in court for years now trying to get like $500 million of this bank's money back. Can you imagine being the guy? Hey, look, if, if a bunch of money showed up in my bank account and then someone came to me a few weeks later and was like, hey, uh, can I get that back? I, I, I'd be like, yeah, make me. Yeah, what, come on. No, it's you gave it to me. Yeah, like I, I will never forget standing it's outside. It's all just numbers on a computer screen, right? Yeah, it's all, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. A little, just a little fraud here and there. Yeah. I'll never forget, like, well, it must have been 2007. I was standing, I, I had this like image in my mind because it's a freezing cold day. I was at the Iowa office in Des Moines and I was in the Happy parking lot. Happy anniversary, by the way. Oh, thank you. It was uh, the Iowa anniversary the Iowa night. caucus, yeah. That's a good one. 14th. Yeah, you don't really celebrate it's, it's that. Not a big one. Is Tweet. that paper or, you know? Yeah, I don't know. Democracy, to keep it. Um, so I, I remember like calling Bank of America because they had let me buy like seven coffees and then charged increasing fees on top, like overdraft fees, like $25, $35. And I was just like, all of a sudden I'm down like 300 bucks. And I don't, I don't, I didn't have a savings account to like cover the overdraft. And yeah. they just fucked me. And I never got that really? back. That's like my biggest fear because I don't watch this stuff nearly as closely as I should. And and I, I'm prone to like the the reverse, you know, bank thing where they just I mean, what if the bank did to you what they did in office space? Remember in office space at the end? Where they're just like stealing little bits of money? Yeah. Or they're trying the to and then they end up yeah. Um like they could do that to me. I mean what would suck here is if you got the money on Christmas and then they just like you think it's like this kind of nice. Yeah, Christmas what if you spent it? The, yeah. And then they just take it back. You know, uh, I don't, that's not cool. Yeah, it feels wrong. I, I, it feels like this bank could afford to take the hit and let people keep the money. Yeah, let them keep the money. Yeah. Well, we're going to learn that. Maybe the like... Chilean guy would make sure that the neolibs didn't take the money back. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> Meanwhile, uh, Bukele, the other millennial yeah. in Latin America, would buy the dip. Well, because money. as Matt Damon reminds us, the future belongs to the brave. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like Bukele, you know. Oh, that commercial. I love that commercial. Incredible. Uh, okay, that's it for the news section. When we come back, you will hear Ben's interview with Howard French about his new book on Africa. So stick around for that.
Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined by Howard French, who is a professor of journalism at Columbia University and a former New York Times bureau chief for Central America and the Caribbean, West and Central Africa, Japan and the Koreas, and China. Um, so cover the world there. But his latest book uh, is Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. Thanks so much for joining us, Howard. It's great to be with you, Ben. So uh, we're going to take a quick tour uh, through through what is an extraordinary book uh, and then up to some current events that have some very deep roots in it. Uh, but I wanted to start uh, by asking you, you know, I first encountered your work, I don't know, I think about 20 years ago when I moved uh, to, to, to D.C. Um, and you were really one of the people through your reporting in your books who helped me understand Africa better. But what made you make this turn from you know, covering things as a journalist, uh, current events, to, to wanting to look uh, at this, the history you deal with in the book? Well, I think my work um, uh, has taken a sort of long, slow turn toward history. Um, uh, this is my fifth book. Uh, and the last, well, with each book, I've gone further and further um, from, uh, along this trajectory from pure journalism toward pure history. And my last book was a book about um, the history and politics of East Asia, uh, and was sort of a, a rough hybrid of the two genres, journalism and history. And, and I, you know, I felt a little bit self-conscious about delving into centuries of East Asian history, not having a formal training as a historian and everything, and waiting sort of uh, very nervously to see how many pot shots would be taken at me. But I worked very with great care in the research, and I talked to lots of people, and I did enormous amounts of reading, and the book was pretty well received uh, by serious historians. And this gave me more confidence to sort of undertake this, uh, to continue this transition. And I, I love history and um, I love working the archives. I love reading materials from um, written in a contemporaneous way in other ages. And so that's what my this present book is, is, is based upon in research terms. It also brings together a lot of sort of things that have been close to my experience of life, uh, both ancestrally and and in terms of my life as a journalist. I worked um, by coincidence, professional accident, really almost all the way around the Atlantic Rim. And this is really a book about the Atlantic world from the late Middle Ages up until modern times. And I'm an African-American on both sides of my family. And my family history is bound up in, in slavery as uh, most African-Americans' family histories are. And in particular, on my mother's side, with um, this extraordinary story about ancestry, um, including a friend of Thomas Jefferson's who, like Thomas Jefferson, uh, he was a member of the Virginia elite and an early governor of the state, had children by a slave that he owned. And so I descend from those people. And this, all of this kept, sort of came together to incline me toward this story. And so uh, why don't you, if you, if you can, sum up for, for folks um, who should definitely check out this book if you want to understand not just history of Africa, but the, the history of the world we live in, um, what your basic argument is here um, and, and how you discovered it. Sure. They're, they're, the, the, the basic arguments are, are, are several. I'm going to sort of focus on, on a couple of key things. One of them is that the story of the history of the modern world that we tend to tell ourselves, what we tend to learn in school, uh, is that the, 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 the so-called modern world, the modern era, begins um, with one of two events, either Columbus's quote-unquote discovery of the New World or um, the Portuguese breakthrough uh, via the maritime exploration to Asia. 
usually the former. Usually it's a Columbus-centered story. And this story says that, you know, it's by virtue of these, these um, historic achievements, uh, Europeans sort of went out into the world and began to do things that changed everything else. And my, my, my narrative, my counter-narrative, I actually think it's, it's, um, uh, uh, it's an inarguable narrative, uh, is that um, these breakthroughs actually predate Columbus and predate people like Vasco da Gama. And they don't involve Africa. The conventional narrative says the Europeans were trying to get around Africa, that they saw Africa as being inherently uninteresting in and of itself. And that's essentially how my profession and how much of American learning still treats Africa, um, that Africa was uninteresting in and of itself and merely needed to be circumnavigated. The real story turns out to be very different and much more interesting. The other big idea of the book I can dispense with really, really quickly, and that is that a byproduct of all of this activity was a discovery that you can plant sugar using regimented slave labor in yeah. plantations. And this was first tried in Sao Tome off the coast by the Portuguese off the coast of Central Africa and then transits the Atlantic Ocean with the discovery of Brazil and finally makes its way all the way up the chain of the Caribbean as sugar migrates throughout the Caribbean. And, and then in the ultimate step, um, these same techniques were used to grow cotton. It was the production of these commodities by African slave labor under the institution of chattel slavery that transformed Western society, that made the West rich, that earned more money by far for Portugal and subsequently than England than all of the gold and silver that the Spanish carted off in their galleons to, uh, back to Spain from the New World. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a big takeaway for me was, you know, they went in search of gold and then they found that slave labor was far more lucrative even than, than gold. Um, so I wanted to, there's some African issues that we cover on this podcast um, that I always feel bad that they lack the context because they can kind of fuel the narrative of uh, a continent incapable of self-government in certain areas. Um, and, and so I wanted to start in Mali, right? Because your book very, very vividly begins with, you know, this, this really one of the richest kingdoms in the world in the 1300s. We've talked about successive coups in Mali on this podcast. We've talked about, you know, terrorist uh, insurgencies. Um, how do you, <laughs> uh, you know, I know this is a long line, but how do you get from that kingdom uh, uh, to uh, the the state of Mali today? Um, how should we think about that when we're watching these events from the outside? Well, there's no straight line to be drawn across centuries of history, as yeah. I think you, you can appreciate. But I, I, I would sort of make two points. One of them is a deep historical point, and one is a relatively recent historical point. The deep historical point is is about the profound importance of historical accidents and coincidences. So Mansa Musa makes it to Cairo and to Mecca with 18 tons of gold and an enormous procession of cortege of court, courtly aides and associates and slaves. No one had ever seen so much wealth in one place under the control of a single person ever in human history. If Mansa Musa had done that only two or three decades later, he would have arrived in the Middle East after the arrival in the Middle East of, of, uh, of um, firearm technology. Firearms had, had, were just about to arrive in the Middle East, and Mansa Musa missed it. 
Had Mansa Musa arrived in the Middle East 10 or 20 years later, he would have witnessed firearms. And here's the world's richest man from yeah. a society, by the way, that had exquisite metalworking techniques of its own. It's very hard to imagine that the Malians would not have become uh, gun makers uh, yeah. and that the, this already very robust and important empire that controlled vast swaths of West Africa would not have become something much more grand and longer lasting than even what it already had been. So that's the sort of very deep history here. So what happens subsequently because of this accident of arriving just before firearms in the Middle East is that firearms did arrive in the Middle East and the Arab explosion, meaning the migration of Islam all across North Africa and into Spain proceeds and North Africans get their hands on, on gun making technology before the Malians. And then um, the um, uh, an empire from North Africa attacks Mali um, in the uh, 1400s and bumps off the Malian Empire. And so this begins a, a, a period of incredible decline for West Africa. You have this very large empire with very elaborate political institutions and control over very extensive geography that gets knocked off right on the cusp, yet again, another accident of the arrival of the Portuguese and of other Europeans in their wake, seeking yeah. the, the purchase of slaves. And so it is this sequence of coincidences that made for weakness in West Africa at a critical time when it was being penetrated or colliding with other parts of the world. And this sort of sets in motion or sets it up to be vulnerable for an era of mass slavery. So that's a, that's one background. Mass slavery, as you know from the book, is not something that you can just, you can sort of dismiss by saying, oh, yes, we know that was terrible. What an awful thing. It, it's important to think about what this meant. Um, Africa lost 12.5 million people who were landed to the new world. That means those were the survivors. Yeah. About a third of that number probably died at sea, meaning so you, you've got another 4 million people to that number. Probably another a half of that number, meaning this is the hardest of the figures to, to understand. Six, eight, 10 million people died in the chaos and warfare that the slave trade fed within Africa. Yeah. So add these numbers up and you're talking almost 20 million people, perhaps even more than 20 million people. And this is in an era when current um, experts, historians and demographers estimate that Africa's total, the entire continent's population was 100 million people. Yeah. You've lost 20 million people out of 100 million people and factor in all the chaos that this involved and you begin to get an idea of how big a hit this represented in terms of social cohesion, social trust, political institutions, learning, um, family stability, what have you, throughout all of West and Central Africa and even into parts of East Africa. So that's 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 one thing. The next yeah. thing you have to understand, I'm, I'm sorry to give you a two-part answer, though, is that, you know, why could Mali have such a great past and be so weak today as part of a much bigger history? And the much bigger history of it uh, in, term, in modern terms is the history of imperialism. Africa was taken over in a very brief period of time by Europeans who decided after the American Revolution uh, that 
um, they wanted to experiment with forms of, in the early industrial era, with forms of political control over other parts of the world that did not involve direct employment of slavery, but involved the extraction of resources and the sale of manufacturers. And so Africa becomes coveted by the Europeans in the late 1800s, and the Europeans take over the entire continent in a historically speaking, in a very compressed period of time. Between the 1890s and say 1915, all of Africa becomes controlled, not, at least nominally, in some places quite effectively by the Europeans. And then by 1957, 1960, almost all of Africa is vacated by the yeah, Europeans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, everything that was innate to Africa in terms yeah. of political institutions, in terms of traditions of governance, in terms of, you know, civil society, in terms of social cohesion was erased. Um, and the Europeans occupied Africa, politically speaking, for the blink of an eye and then departed, not even having really invested very much yeah. in creating substitutes in terms of those institutions. And so when you look at Mali and you say, how could a, such a great place be so weak today? You have to ask that. That, it's the, that same question is true of almost the entire yeah. continent. Yeah. And the yeah. answer to that question is the same for almost the entire continent. Yeah. Because it was the target and victim of disruption on such an immense scale and such a, a, an incredibly concentrated period of time that has never been counterbalanced by any sort of investment uh, by outsiders in in productive activities or political stability and institution building. Yeah. No, well, that, that's a great answer for, unfortunately, you're right, a lot of countries. And then the other uh, uh, one I wanted to ask you about was Haiti. You know, you write also about the kind of resiliency of uh, the people who were enslaved um, and the resistance, uh, which obviously reaches its culmination in the, the first successful slave revolt in the world, which leads to the independence of Haiti. We've talked a lot on this podcast about uh, obviously, the chaos and violence that continues to grip Haiti. Um, why did that moment of, of of resilience and resistance and ultimately triumph in Haiti? How do you look at the trajectory uh, to where we are today? Uh, is that is that a, a similar story? Uh, how how does it differ from 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 Mali in the sense that uh, this is a self governed entity, but I, I know also an entity that since it became independent has been the target of uh, uh, various forms of either neglect or uh, interference from the United States and other powers? Well, so neglect is a good word for, for um, uh, much of Haiti's recent international um, relations, but, but, but interference is the more important term for, for the broader swath of history, uh, Haitian history in, the, in its own post-independence era. So the Haitian Revolution begins in 1791, by, by, by 1804, Haiti becomes, it has thrown off European rule. It has eliminated slavery entirely. It is the first uh, nation in the world, not only to have, beco to have become a, a, a nation state by virtue of a successful slave revolt, but also to have fully and constitutionally and uni universally fulfilled the most fundamental ideals of the Enlightenment, which say that all people are equal and that no one can be slave of another person. The United States didn't fully fulfill these ideals until late in the 20th century. Um, what happened after Haiti won this great independence though, after it defeated the three greatest imperialist powers of that era, 
namely Spain, France, and England, or Britain, all of which, well, two of which, France and Spain, I'm sorry, France and Britain sent the largest fleets ever sent across the Atlantic for purposes of conquest in order to subdue the Haitian slave revolt, and the slaves defeated both of them. So how could Haiti be a, a society so capable, be so weak and so unstable today? Well, think about the response of the imperial powers to their defeat at the hands of these black people. What did they do? Uh, they quarantined Haiti for the next half century. The United yeah. States refused to extend diplomatic recognition to Haiti. France imposed a, a, a sort of a, 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 a ransom, uh, so to speak, in terms of uh, uh, um, uh, it's the terms that it sought in terms for in order to for it to extend recognition to the Haitian Empire. Um, the American society, remember, this is 1804. This is more than a half century before the United States eliminates slavery. The American political class was terrified by what happened in Haiti. They thought that uh, if this could, ha if slaves could rise up in Haiti and defeat white people, then perhaps the same thing could happen on American soil. Yeah. This this sets in motion the wholesale migration, sale. Into, toward the West and migration of slaves into the Mississippi Valley from Virginia and the Old South by the old plantation societies of that part of the United States, largely out of terror. They feared that they would be also become the victims of, of a Haitian-like slave uprising. And this sets in motion uh, the, the rise, economically speaking, of the United States as cotton becomes king, according to the cliche over, over that same next half century. Well, as cotton was becoming king in the Mississippi Valley, the United States, France, and most of the rest of the Western world was placing Haiti in an economic quarantine. And so Haiti, which had proven itself so capable of organizing for military purposes to liberate itself and to end slavery, was absolutely asphyxiated economically. Yeah. Uh, and a half century of being asphyxiated economically is not something that one easily drags oneself out of. And I'm afraid Haiti has never been able to get back on its feet completely ever since then. It's had a few relatively short periods, good periods, but it has had lots of subsequent um, political interference by outside powers, including the United States, which occupied Haiti from 1910 to 1945. Yeah. Last question I wanted to just ask you is, you know, we also are in an era, though, where you start to see some rapid development in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. There's been talk for some time now you know, of Africa rising. Uh, by 2050, I think a huge chunk, if not half the world's young people will be in Africa. Um, do you think the combination of a recognition of this kind of history together with that kind of growth could, could, could lead us to a period where um, you know, uh, the African continent and African nations and African peoples um, kind of reclaim the central role um, that that you write about in this book? Well, I think Africa is bound to occupy a central role in the century ahead. And most people in this country, in fact, most people in the world are totally unprepared, mentally speaking, for that idea. Um, the question is, how will Africa occupy a central role in the century ahead? Uh, it can be in a positive sense or it can be in, in a negative sense. The power of African demography is unstoppable. Uh, Africa is 1.4 billion people today. It'll probably be 2.5 billion people by the middle of this century. Toward the end of this century, the further you project outwards, it becomes harder and harder to give a precise numbers. But 
but but perhaps four to five billion people will live in Africa. That will be more than China and India combined uh, easily. Um, and so the future of humanity is bound up in what happens in Africa. Yeah. The question is, does the rest of will the rest of the world come to its senses and figure out that it has to change the way it engages with Africa in a timely way, such that Africa can be brought online in terms of the international economy to become much more productive, to have much more widespread industry and employment, to have much better educational institutions, more broadly speaking, to have uh, basic amenities like electricity and, and other sorts of utilities. And if the answer is no to those questions, if the rest of the world cannot be sort of come to its senses about yeah. this, then something else will happen. Africa will not be, a, a largely speaking, let me just pause to say I'm making a big, broad, general yeah, statement yeah. about Africa, which yeah. I hate to do. I know, uh, I know. But for, for the sake of economy here in terms of time, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plow ahead. Yeah. Um, one, if the world doesn't come to its senses and figure out, completely revolutionize, and I don't use that word lightly, its means of engaging with Africa, then Africa will become, in a negative sense, the center of world affairs as 4.5 billion people, 4 to 5 billion people, uh, a great portion of them decide that they simply won't stay put in Africa and there will be no stopping. Europeans are living under an illusion today that through, you know, maintaining client states here and there and offering economic incentives and positing armies and, you know, in, in, in Sahelian countries or building walls in North Africa or intercepting boats in the Mediterranean or any combination of those sorts of things that they can control African migration, they haven't even begun to see what African migration can look like if, in fact, Africa is not engaged in a much, much deeper and more constructive way. Well, I, that's a very uh, powerful and succinct um, argument. I, I want to thank you for coming on. And, and again, the book is uh, Born in Blackness, Howard French. Uh, thanks so much for, for writing this book and, and for all the reporting and writing you do and, and for talking to us uh, here today. Great to talk to you, Ben. Thanks again to Howard French for doing the show. What else? I'm, uh, I got I got a website open in front of me that's an archive from GW about the CIA's covert activities following the 73 military coup in Chile, and it is extensive. I mean, I would encourage people if you haven't, you know, if 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 in your like lefty college days you didn't go down the rabbit hole of the CIA's coup uh, of Salvador Allende, um, it's just like it's a pretty gross story. I would like to know what united those what what convinced those people that they were the good guy you know what i mean at what point are you like working with death squads to the point where you realize like oh i'm not the good guy was it was it just anti-communist fervor was it like right-wingness was it fear that i don't know some sort of like post-world war ii hangover that you know where you just fear the greatest evil possible in the world i don't know i mean i think right like in that case the communism was the pretext, right? So Salvador Allende gets elected, democratically elected president of Chile. He's a communist. Um, then there's this, and I got into this because of my keyboard, there's this kind of like weird outsized fear of Cuba, which I think, here's, here's my theory of this, is that the CIA and by extension, the kind of US national security establishment that 
like people like Kissinger were at the center of, never got over the fact that they, they, they couldn't beat the Cubans. They got punked. Yeah. They got punked, right? They, they, they quote unquote lost Cuba. Then they couldn't assassinate Castro. The Bay of Pigs failed, and and they just it like stuck in their craw. And if you look at the U.S., like we we don't like these countries that that we lose our quote unquote grip over, right? Like Iran, Cuba, are the ones that we had the longest term problems with, mm-hmm. right? Um, and yeah, and so, there's the yeah. overlapping corporate interests, you know, like the Banana Republic. Well, that stuff, yeah, yeah, that's right. That 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 stuff was huge down there, right? And but they basically like they assassinate, they shoot the guy, kill the guy in the presidential palace. I mean, it was an unsubtle coup. And then Pinochet goes in, and then it you know it turns into the the great oppressive neoliberal experiment, right? Brutal, brutal, tough reading. Worth it though. But here we are, and we've got like a 36 year old lefty uh, in charge of Chile. So, yeah, man. You know, history can change. It can. Yeah. What was it? What did that uh, guy we used to work for say? Arc of the moral universe is long. Yeah, yeah. Bends for justice. Sometimes, sometimes it does. <laughs> yeah. It takes some effort. Yeah, it takes a little effort. To it's not really bending arc. at the moment. Yeah, it's just kind of you know, drifting it's up in the wrong direction, off. right? We're just going to reach up and grab it. Floating right? off to tomorrow. Need a bunch of worldos to get their hands on that arc. Yeah, hurry up, everybody. Or else Steve Bannon's going to do it for us in the <laughs> yeah, wrong direction. Yeah. Uh, okay. Talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. <laughs>